Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Locker Room. My name is John Leahy. Thanks so much for being with us on the podcast this week and each week. I want to thank my guest from last week, the former radio voice of the Hartford Whalers and Carolina Hurricanes, Chuck Caton. Chuck was very kind to join us on the podcast last week. And also we had Dan Rusinowski of the San Jose Sharks on two weeks ago. So we're having a great time uh, talking with the uh, hockey broadcasters, and today we have a very special treat for you. I'm very excited. Uh, we are going to be speaking with the voice of the National Hockey League up in Canada. He is on Sportsnet, formerly uh, working for TSN, NBC, CBC, the Hockey Night in Canada, very decorated broadcaster and certainly the most recognizable voice up in Canada uh, in terms of broadcasting hockey. His name is Chris Cuthbert. Chris, I can't thank you enough for being here today. This is going to be such a big thrill for me. Well, it's uh, good to be with you, John. Thanks for having me. And i got to say, I've got uh, big shoes to fill if I'm following Chuck Caton. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm starting out uh, with a little bit of trepidation. <laughs> You're going to be fantastic. and It's been wonderful having a chance to get inside the world of, of a hockey broadcast. This is the first time we've really had the Canadian perspective. So uh, I'm very excited to have you. And I'd like to just start a little bit. Uh, about your background, and uh, I know that you were a big fan of Dan Kelly growing up in Canada. He's a legendary, of course, was a legendary Canadian sports broadcaster, and I know you listened to him uh, quite a bit. Uh, what kind of an influence was Dan on your decision to uh, become a hockey broadcaster? Well, you know, I, I went to bed every night with a, a little speaker, a radio, a transistor radio under my under my pillow, and, and I would, uh, you know, I'd be looking for games uh, uh, wherever I could find them, and I was lucky enough that KMOX was uh, uh, the St. Louis came in loud and clear every night, and uh, you know I love listening to Dan Kelly. Uh, there was so many others, uh, you know. I'd listen to the Bruins, uh, Chicago. Uh, um, you know, it was funny uh, with Marv Albert uh, retiring, and I was thinking back. Marv uh, did the Ranger games on a couple of different stations. Uh, when he was on 1050, that was kind of blocked here in Toronto by a, uh, a strong station here by Chum. But when he was on lower on the dial, I could get the, the Ranger games with Marv as well. So there was usually a hockey game uh, under my pillow every night. Uh, but, but the guy who really resonated with me, that guy that, uh, and they all did, uh, but uh, but for some reason Dan would would have that the hairs on the back of your neck stand up uh, during a game and I always thought that was uh, such an amazing trait to have and, and and I wanted to be that guy on the radio in in these faraway places whether it be Boston Chicago New York St Louis uh, and uh, and as I got older more of those uh, uh, more of those cities as as the NHL expanded so uh, for sure Dan Kelly was a was a major influence. Chris, I, I can certainly relate to that because growing up here in Boston, uh, we were kind of blessed with Fred Cusick and Bob Wilson, and I would take a little black and white TV under the covers and uh, in, in fear that my father would take it away from me. But I, you know, watching a Bruins Flyers game and getting a chance to listen to Fred and and Bob, you know, you really get uh, impregnated with with the game at that age. Well, I, I'm glad you mentioned Bob because uh, I, I I would say he was a like a number two radio voice who uh, I just I just loved his call. I I wasn't as familiar with Fred 
because he was on TV and we didn't get access here to the Bruin uh, TV games until late in his career. But but Bob Wilson and off the dasher and just that uh, his cadence his cadence was as close to matching. Uh, uh, Dan's, as I think I listened to, and another special voice here that uh, your listeners might not be as familiar with, but on the TV side in Canada was uh, was Danny Gallivan, uh, who did the Montreal Canadian Games, and not only was was he as good as anybody who's ever done it, but uh, he was broadcasting those powerhouse Canadian teams that seem to win the cup uh, almost every year, and uh, there was something magical about his call. I've, I've 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 often said in my mind the best hockey broadcaster technically was Dan Kelly and the the the, the best with the artistic flair was Danny Gallivan who just uh, had uh, had a magical way of uh, of taking a moment and 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 making it even greater than it was so uh, uh, lucky to lucky to listen to all of them and. Uh, uh, by osmosis, I hope a, a little of it has, has sunk in. Well, I'm sure a lot of it has sunk in. I know I'm a big fan watching you down here in the U.S., uh, as, as are many, many others. But I, I'd like to talk to you also, Chris, about the uh, Stanley Cup final that uh, you just finished calling, uh, Montreal and Tampa Bay, a series which the Lightning won in five games. You know, how special was it to have a Canadian team back in the Stanley Cup final, you know, especially in a city like, city like Montreal where, where hockey is so highly regarded? What was it like for you to be a part of that and, and to have that Canadian uh, feel back in the finals? Well, John, it was my first Stanley Cup, so it was going to be memorable and special for me, uh, a privilege to do it for the first time and get all the way to uh, the Cup presentation and, um, you know, you hope that, uh, the first time you do it, it, it has some special meaning. And, and I, I, I don't think it sunk in for me until the Canadians won in overtime against Vegas to qualify that, uh, how special indeed it was because you could kind of sense the whole country was, uh, uh, had, had at least, if not got behind the Canadians, at least had a strong interest in in how they were going to do in the final, and uh, our numbers were substantially up ratings wise because it was the first time in a decade that a Canadian team had been in the final, and for the Canadians, the first time since '93, which was the the longest gap in the, in the history of that franchise without being to a Stanley Cup final. So uh, it it was special for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, they did. They did win Game Four. I, I think uh, a sweep by the Lightning would have uh, would have taken away a little bit of uh, of the shine from from the Cup for for Canadian fans. But uh, I, I think that win gave uh, gave Canadian fans a little bit of a consolation and and but a true appreciation for how good the Tampa Bay Lightning team is and uh, and how deserving they were to win back to back cups. Well, Chris, I'd like to talk about COVID nineteen in a moment, but uh, were you actually uh, in uh, the arena? Did you do Did you do the games live? And if so, what was the atmosphere like in Montreal? The atmosphere. I, I just joked uh, with uh, with somebody else that I think it late in the uh, later in the playoffs, uh, they kept saying they only had thirty five hundred, and that the government would not open the rink to to more fans, but. Uh, in the in game six against Vegas and in the two games of the Stanley Cup final, it felt like somebody left the back door open and <laughs> a lot of people ended up being in the building because <laughs> the atmosphere was 
uh, it was unbelievable. I, 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 I don't think I'm exaggerating saying it felt almost like a full rink, and that was pretty remarkable uh, considering, you know, it was not nearly that. Uh, but I think that tells you something about the passion of the fans in Montreal. I, I will say without any doubt that the best atmosphere of any rink, uh, when it is full and when the game is an important one, it, there's nothing quite like, uh, well, there was nothing quite like the Montreal Forum and the Bell Center is a pretty reasonable facsimile. Um, but then again, we were in Tampa with a full building for the, uh, for the final, and uh, that building was special as well. Absolutely. You know, I always wished I could have seen a game at the Montreal Forum. I never made it up there, but, you know, you see uh, the, the you go back to the the images of Guy Lafleur scoring goals in, in Game 7, for example, against the Bruins, and uh, you, you really get a sense for how important hockey is up in Canada, not just in Montreal, but in the whole country. And uh, and, and I really have an appreciation for, for the way hockey uh, is, is played up there and, and, and what a great country to watch the game in. Well, it, it is, and it, it is so important to the fabric of the country. And I, I might get in trouble with, uh, with uh, fans elsewhere, but I, I do think it, it reaches a different cultural level in Montreal. And, uh, and it is a shame you didn't get to the forum because, and you mentioned Lafleur. Um, you know, there was nothing quite like uh, Guy Lafleur winding up in his own zone, and the and the the crowd rising with the with his rush and the hair flowing back in the day without <laughs> uh, a helmet. And uh, by the time he got to the other end and had scored, the building just erupting was. Uh, you know, I, I I don't know what what the atmosphere was like at a full Yankee Stadium when Mickey Mantle hit a grand slam, but uh, I, I'm guessing. You know, that's the kind of atmosphere that uh, was at the Forum. It was a special place. The people who worked there um, took such immaculate care of it. I, I used to joke, you could eat off the floor at the Montreal Forum. Every Saturday we'd go in for uh, the pregame skate, and after uh, after the teams had left the ice, they'd, they'd be out uh, uh, uh Cleaning the glass like uh, like you'd be polishing the uh, crystal before a major event, and and at night the, even the security people would be uh, would be dressed to the nines in their full Montreal Canadian uniforms with the red uh, with the red suit jackets. And uh, I I remember a gentleman who probably was eighty, and he was the security person we would have to pass to get into the uh, gondola at the forum uh, to do the broadcasts. And uh, I, I, I felt like I, I should be saluting to the gentleman because uh, I could sense the pride he had every Saturday night when, uh, when uh, the Montreal Canadiens were at the Forum. It, it, just, it, it just took a different level than anything I've experienced. And, and I grew up in Toronto as a, as a Leaf fan, so I'm not saying this <laughs> with a, as a card-carrying Montreal Canadiens fan for sure. Well, you know, uh, another part of, of of hockey up there is, uh, you know, they had the Quebec Nordiques up there in Quebec City. Now, I, I did a lot of games up there doing baseball back in the day, but uh, the Nordiques were pretty popular there. There, of course, they they uh, realigned out to Denver. But do you feel that hockey m- could make a comeback in Quebec City? I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, if if 
Colorado had beaten Vegas, it would have been Colorado and Montreal. And I, I think there were a lot of fans in Quebec that wanted to pretend that was going to be the Nordiques and the Canadians. And <laughs> I think there was some anticipation of that, especially with the uh, with the throwback uniforms the Nordique uh, the the Nordiques the Avalanche had that included the fleur de lis of the Nordiques on the jersey. It was, uh, uh, you know, it was going to be a throwback. I did the series in 93 that uh, got the Canadians started on their way to the Cup uh, when they were down 2 nothing to the Nordiques and, and roared back. They were actually down 2 nothing as well in Game 3, ended up winning that game in overtime and then won the next uh, the next three to, to win the series in six. And the that, that province just uh, absolutely came to a standstill. Uh, and, and that wasn't the only series they had, and there was a... Uh, there was a, a one uh, brawl that was off the charts and has gone down in in infamy in in the NHL between those two teams as well. Um, but it was such a rivalry, and uh, all of Quebec is such a, uh, you know it, it's 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 such hockey country that uh, I, I have no doubt that uh, uh, that it would go again. Uh, there's been the talk about. You know, um, uh, Quebec City being a small market, and and that uh, with an eighty million dollar cap, it might be difficult. But if if Winnipeg can do it, uh, and and they have been able to be successful, there's a there's a beautiful new building in Quebec City. I I, I think it could happen, but I'm I'm not sure it's going to happen. All right, Chris, uh, let's move on to COVID-19. Now, you called the last pre-pandemic game out in Los Angeles on March 11, 2020, Ottawa and Los Angeles. Uh, I'm curious, you know, how did COVID impact you in terms of broadcasting and how you do your job? And uh, what is the situation right now up in Canada with COVID-19? We, we get a sense of it here in the U.S., uh, but, but we're not really sure how, how things are going up there. So uh, talk a little bit about that experience and how COVID is affecting Canada right now. Well, I'll start with that last game because it was eerie that night. Uh, you know, it was slowly becoming a news story, and uh, and about a half hour before I, I went upstairs for the uh, the warm up, the NBA announced that it was it was uh, shutting down, and I, I think everybody knew that at that point in time that uh, and the NHL wasn't going to be far behind. It was a strange night. It was. Uh, it was a half-empty rink in in Los Angeles, and and that is a great building with a great atmosphere most of the time. But that night, uh, you could tell it was different, and uh, and our world changed uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, I was fortunate enough that I never had to call a game off a monitor. Uh, obviously, everybody's life has been upended by this, and and uh, last year's playoffs were were done in a bubble. I spent uh, I did. Uh, I did 45 games in 45 days, I think, or something close to that uh, in um, in Edmonton in the bubble, uh, which was a different experience, uh, something I'll never do again. I called two game sevens in the same day, wow. uh, which will never happen again, I don't think. <laughs> um, and then, you know, time off, and, 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 and then uh, we start back in January, and lots of questions. And uh, I was fortunate enough that I never had to call a game off a monitor, Many of my colleagues did, and I thought they did an extraordinary job. In fact, I, I often was worried that they were doing too good a job and setting a dangerous precedent where we might not be getting back into rinks to uh, call games on a regular basis. But right. uh, 
Um, you know, we, we chartered uh, with the NHL uh, through the last two rounds of the playoffs this year and were tested every day to accommodate uh, regulations uh, up in Canada where actually the border is closed or was closed until the last few days but was uh, allowed to be open. And I think only hockey would allow that uh, or the government would only allow it for hockey uh, because the border is still closed for uh, for other sports. But uh, And that doesn't necessarily sound fair, and it probably isn't, but uh, I think it shows you... Uh, uh, that uh, sometimes they can bend the rules or, or change the rules a little bit because hockey is so important up here. Um, anyway, but we, we got through it. Um, the situation is, 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 has improved rapidly here, really. Uh, we've taken a more cautious approach than, uh, than folks uh, south of the border, and um, I think we're seeing the finish line in sight uh, as the numbers drop dramatically and, and vaccinations now are... Uh, are really up into uh, into a, a much safer area where we're almost, I think, in this province, getting close to seventy five percent vaccinated. So uh, it is encouraging, but we're we're pretty cautious here, and uh, I don't think anybody considers us out of the woods yet. Chris, is there any talk about when the border uh, might be opening? Well, the border has just opened. Uh, you need uh, to be tested and. Uh, double vaxxed i think to uh to cross over in fact uh we've had a property in arizona for a number of years and have not been back uh, since uh, a day or two after that uh, ottawa los angeles game and uh we're planning to go back next week but we uh we need to be tested to get on the plane uh we're fortunately double vaccinated and uh and when we come back from our our brief trip to Arizona will uh, will have to be tested prior to entering the country again, unless the rules change in the, in the next few weeks, which uh, I think the border becomes even more open uh, as of August the 15th or mid-August, but uh, that's unofficial right now. I think uh, we'll know a lot more in the next few days. Okay, Chris, I'd like to go back uh, again, back into your, your history a little bit, and I'd like to talk about the 1988 Stanley Cup Final. There's a great story uh, regarding you and, and how uh, how you became involved in that. You were in Washington, D.C., reporting on a, on a Capitals playoff game, and uh, there was a power outage in Montreal. I'm going to let you tell the story because this is fascinating stuff, but this was really your big break in the business, wasn't it? Well, it was. I, I had worked for Hockey Night in Canada for four or five years. I was, for the most part, a host, wanting to be a, a full-time play-by-play uh, man, and and I would I would get a few assignments a year, but not as many as I liked. And and in the '88 playoffs, hard to believe now, John. All playoff games were not televised back then, right. and Hockey Night in Canada elected uh, at that time uh, to cover the. Washington, New Jersey series just by doing intermission updates, uh, live hits, while in the intermissions of that year, Boston and Montreal was the primary series uh, up against Washington, New Jersey. Um, So they sent me to Washington, actually the Landover at the time, uh, to do these intermission hits. And uh, my first night there, they... uh, they had a, a huge power failure through the, the whole province of Quebec. And halfway through the first period of the game, uh, they, uh, my producer, the, the only other person down in Washington with me, uh, came into the headset and said, uh, start calling the game. 
And I thought, well, this is unusual because I, I was only supposed to do it during the intermissions. Um, and I, you know, we were 15 minutes into that Montreal Boston game, but I, I started calling the game and, uh, kept going and kept going and finally threw to a commercial and, and said, were you just testing out the audio? And they said, no. He said, nope, you're, uh, you're on the air tonight and, uh, and didn't give me any details. And then later in the game, I, I started giving Boston Montreal scores, which confused me and I, I thought, this is not going to sit well with the audience. Uh, why am I giving scores of the Boston-Montreal game and we're not covering the game? Uh, that's, the, that's the game people are tuning in to, to watch. And uh, I later found out that uh, there was a generator at the Montreal Forum that allowed uh, the game to continue. They had enough power in the, in, in the building, but they didn't have enough power to get the signal out of the building and to transmitters uh, through the province to send the signal to the rest of the country. So for two and a half hours, I was play-by-play man, uh, host of the intermissions and color man. And uh, um, I, I remember leaving the building with my uh, with with my producer and asking him if if our careers had ended that night because uh, <laughs> you know your 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 head's kind of swimming and and. Uh, and he did not give me a very uh, definitive answer, which concerned me more. Uh, but this was pre uh, pre uh, internet and and uh, pre uh, 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 sports networks in the st- in in Canada. Anyway, I know ESPN was was going, but uh, up in Canada there was no Sportsnet or TSN, and and, and so anyway, the feedback. Uh, was was kind of slow in coming but as it turned out uh, i think a lot of people just tuned in and stayed tuned in to see if uh, this young kid could get through two and a half hours of tv on his own and uh, uh it became uh, uh, it became uh, uh, certainly a springboard in my career and i know you won't bring this up so i will that it, you received a gemini award for that performance it, it, it was the first uh, of five you would win you're a five-time canadian screen award winner but uh, you know, to, to to be put on the spot like that and be so calm and cool under pressure, uh, that was noticed, and, and uh, what, what an incredible experience in your career. Well, it, you know what, it was a lesson for me uh, as well, and it's a lesson for all broadcasters in in preparation, and, and I will admit that I was not as well prepared that night as I should have been, and one of the stories I tell about that is, is a couple of hours before the game, because they were only going to be two, three-minute hits, I didn't go through my usual research, which is often, uh, you know, eight hours for a game and, and doing the full uh, story, or my, my, my game boards, which take two or three hours to put together. I, I took a lot of shortcuts because I was doing five minutes of television that night, or at least I thought I was going to. And about two hours before the game, I got a panic attack like you might have had back in the day. Maybe not you, John, but me going into a, a high school exam that I hadn't really <laughs> studied for. And so I went into cram mode. And cram mode's hard to do back in 1988 without the Internet. Right. So all I really had as, as, uh, as, as information were, were media guides. And I started rifling through media guides and taking little notes on, on different people. And the first guy in the media guide, or one of the first pages of the of the Washington media guide, was Sam McMaster. And I stopped at that page because Sam was instrumental in getting Wayne Gretzky to the 
to Sault Ste. Marie as a junior and starting his legendary career. And Sam was the assistant GM in Washington. And for whatever reason, I got stuck on that page. And and it turned out to be uh, just an amazing uh, piece of good fortune for me because, uh, as I said, not only did I call the game, I had to fill the intermissions. And uh, the, the hockey community is... is is a great community and very helpful. And they knew that this guy was down there on his own and the capital sent Sam McMaster over in the first intermission as my first intermission guest. <laughs> and, uh, here I was having just read the full bio with, uh, with plenty of information on Sam to get through that, uh, intermission, uh, interview with, with kind of an intelligent take. And, and I've always kind of laughed at, uh, you know, I didn't do the proper prep, but even a little bit of prep, uh, can can take you a long way. We're talking with Chris Cuthbert. He is the voice of the National Hockey League on Sportsnet up in Canada, longtime voice of Hockey Night in Canada. Chris, there's another uh, uh, part of your your past that I'd like to talk about. On December 1st, 2006, you became the first play-by-play broadcaster in NHL history to broadcast a game from ice level. It was a Buffalo Rangers game against Glenn Healy. I wonder if you could uh, just kind of recap that story for us and tell tell us how that all came to be. Well, actually, uh, Glenn was was beside me in the uh, in the uh, in that inside the glass position that NBC uh, liked to call. TSN used a man between the benches. We called it between the benches, and that night I think they called it. Uh, they wanted a different name because I was down there as well. So I think we called it front row center that night. Um, I always wanted to try it because I was working with color men who were down there and, and getting a different perspective and. And there, there are some buildings that are they're high, and uh, and I feel at a disadvantage for the play-by-play guy. Um, um, and so Buffalo was one that I uh, I decided that I'd, I'd like to give it a try, and, and was given clearance for it. And I, I will tell you that the first the first goal in that game uh, I did not call well because I got blocked at the last second as the shot was taken. But I did find the experience really, really interesting. Um, I, I, uh, uh, the speed of the game is at a different level uh, when you're down there. Um, my recognition of players was, was always clear. Sometimes you would get blocked, though, uh, by linesmen who, who might end up standing right in near your position because that was their position on the ice as well. Um, uh, I think Heels got hit with a puck that night and took one for me uh, because if he hadn't blocked it, good goaltender, he made the save, <laughs> otherwise I might have got it. Um, but uh, I ended up doing probably a dozen of them. I remember a night in Washington, and and I, I'm sure your fans are familiar with, Alexander Ovechkin always stands at the end of the bench, and that happened to be right beside me, which in itself was just an amazing experience. And, and that night... I had one of these boards that I use, uh, and I really didn't have time to ever look down at it from that position, but I did my usual prep, and I use a lot of coloring to re-identify teams and, and highlight certain notes right. And uh, with bright ink. And that night, uh, I got sprayed early with snow down there, and my whole board ran. Oh, no. And I remember Ovechkin looking kind of over my shoulder at my board, which was just running ink. And he kind of looked at me and shook his head like you're a, you're a nut, you know. And uh, <laughs> uh, one of the one of my my takeaways from being down there. But uh, um, you've seen some uh, 
some color guys get uh, hit down there, and I, I knew it was a matter of time before I took one between the eyes, so uh, I kind of retreated to safety after a while, but uh, it was a neat experience, and uh, I'm glad I had the opportunity. Well, when Alex Ovechkin retires and he goes into the broadcast booth, then he'll get a greater appreciation of, of <laughs> your boards, right? <laughs> and I was going to say it was the first time that my board had, had kind of leaked because I'm I have a I have a, a bad reputation of, of spilling upstairs water. Uh, I've got uh, headset cords and water uh, water bottles open, and uh, I can I can be a bit of a mess up there. So uh, if he's ever in the booth with me. He may not have seen the last uh, board uh, uh, storyboard of mine that is running. Chris, I'd like to talk to you also about your coverage of Olympic hockey. And, and I think the call that you're most famously identified with was the Sidney Crosby game-winning goal at the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver. I wonder if you could just reflect back on not only that experience, but the experience of calling Olympic hockey uh, as a whole. It's got to be such an incredible experience. Yeah, it it is a career highlight. Um, it's uh, it is the game I most identified with, and um, I've 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 always said that that atmosphere in Vancouver uh, for that game, uh, the gold medal game, is like none other I've been in. It was a phenomenal experience uh, from uh, from start to finish, and. Uh, uh, Zach Parisi tied the game uh, very late in regulation, and uh, I, I, I received some criticism for sounding as excited as I did when he tied it for the U.S. Uh, up in Canada. But I, I think that goal took the whole experience to another level in overtime, and uh, it turned a great game into an epic and, and one of the most uh, um, memorable games in, in, in Canadian hockey history. So uh, it's an honor to be part of it. And uh, um, just before overtime, I was I was kind of trying to stay alert, and I was playing some mind games. And uh, for whatever reason, I thought to myself, man, if the next goal was scored in soccer it'd be the golden goal and and as soon as i thought it i kind of had that eureka moment that uh uh man i i like that i think i'm going to use that uh, uh for the next goal and uh so uh when crosby scored and again the the greatest player of, of the time scores the greatest goal in uh in canadian olympic history uh, uh and, and putting the golden goal to that uh, certainly resonated across the country you know, Chris, you make an interesting point. You know, I'm coming up on my 17th year at Merrimack doing the games, and I remember when I first started, I got criticism uh, from being excited when, when the visiting team scores, and, and I responded to that fan by saying, I think I can shed some light on that. Uh, I'm a hockey fan, and I appreciate good plays, and, you know, that's just my nature of how I call the game. I think you'll find that I call the, I call the goals a little louder when Merrimack scores, but... Uh, I think when you're a hockey fan and a broadcaster, I, I just think that kind of comes natural. At least that's the way it is for me. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and and uh, you know, I, 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 I think I think the business has changed. That there are some tremendous uh, local or or team announcers who are able to to call it down the middle and um, and. And, and do a tremendous job of it. And, and now I think we've seen a lot more of the Homer announcer, uh, in, in broadcasts that, um, that are also extremely popular. And I, I think there's, I think there's now the feedback I get is there's more of an expectation now 
that if you're the voice of a certain team, you better be a homer. I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I, I do sense that that there's a majority of fans that, that want that. So it's, it's kind of a catch-22 for a broadcaster. When I started with Hockey Night in Canada, uh, you were really reined in on that. You had to be down the middle. Uh, I'd be criticized by my producers uh, if I said... Uh, it's uh, it's Edmonton two and the Flames one because I'd have to say Edmonton and Calgary or the Oilers or the Flames right. because they didn't want any hint that I was more comfortable with one team than the other. So that was my background, and now I go in to do national games where I try to be down the middle, and during the week those fans have listened to their own broadcaster and they have become comfortable with the the Homer part of that broadcast. So our 50-50 sounds like we're cheering for the other side. And it, it's I've, I've likened it, when I do national games with two Canadian teams, I've likened it to the dilemma of taking two girls to the high school dance. Uh, you can't <laughs> keep either one of them happy. So uh, it's, it's, it's fraught with peril, for sure. Chris, I'd like to touch a little bit on your football broadcasting career. Uh, you covered the Canadian Football League uh, for many years. You've done a lot of Grey Cups. You're in the Canadian Football Hall of Fame in the media wing. Uh, I wonder if you could just touch on how special it was to be involved with uh, Canadian football. You know, if it's anything as popular as the NFL down here, and I'm sure it is, uh, that must be that must have been uh, quite the experience. Well, it was. It, it you know, I grew up with the with the Canadian Football League, and and, and in fact, my my entry point as an NFL fan was when I watched CFL players who excelled and then went to the U.S. And so I'd start cheering for uh, for uh, players from the long past. I'm sure most of your listeners wouldn't remember, but uh, uh, but if a player like uh, I cheered for the Ottawa Rough Riders and Bo Scott went from Ottawa to uh, the Cleveland Browns backfield after the retirement of Jim Brown and. Vic Washington was a Grey Cup hero here and went to San Francisco, and Margene Atkins was another star uh, here, and he went to Dallas. Now, this is back in the 60s, so I'm, I'm dating myself here. But uh, uh, for me, uh, the fans may or may not be familiar with the fact that uh, the, the CFL has different rules, different size field, um, and, uh, and, and has a Canadian quota of players and three downs. So it is different. Uh, I love football of any description. Uh, I'll sign up for a high school game, a college game, a CFL game, a uh, Canadian college game, uh, an NFL game. Uh, you know, but, but there are nuances to the CFL, and it's always been part of, of, of my Canadian experience, and so it was an honor and a privilege to do CFL games and the Grey Cup, which which to me is as revered as a trophy as the Stanley Cup, uh, and it goes back even further in history, uh, well over a hundred years. Um, so 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 to get that opportunity was outstanding. I've made the move now to uh, back to Hockey Night in Canada and to Sportsnet, so I I will no longer be calling football, and uh, and that really is the only downside for me. It's uh, it's going to be disappointing and. Uh, um, I guess the the only consolation is I'll 
I'll get back to being a fan and uh and it'll be fun to get into the stands and just uh uh you know to be able to 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 be a fan of the sport again. Well, I know that uh we really uh became known uh, as we we really uh, started to learn about the uh CFL when Doug Flutie played up there. Of course, Doug was a a quarterback for the Buffalo Bills and he's he's a Massachusetts native. So a lot of a lot of uh, American players have played up there. Well, Doug Doug is the uh Doug is Doug is believed to be. I, I, I we, we could get into a pretty good debate, but I, I think as just on his CFL resume, Doug's the greatest player in CFL history. Uh, when you say that, people will start arguing about Warren Moon, who uh, who is certainly the greatest player to ever play in the CFL, but but stayed five years. Uh, Doug's career was longer. It was far more prolific, and uh, I was very fortunate to call. A lot of Doug Flutie games, uh, just a legendary uh, guy on and off the field. Um, it really was a privilege uh, to get to know him and, and to uh, to call uh, the game. The CFL game was tailor made for Doug Flutie, and um, and nobody has excelled at a higher level uh, doing it. And uh, uh, I have a little story. I started with the Montreal Alouettes. In 1981, and they they had Vince Ferragamo, which uh, some of your listeners would be familiar with. Well, it was a powerhouse team that crashed, and then had to be put back together. And I remember they they had they didn't do a draft of American players. They had uh, negotiation lists. You could put a player if you spotted them first. You could put him on your negotiation list. And Doug Flutie was on the Montreal Alouettes negotiation list. And I remember the coach telling me that all of the bad times would be put aside when Doug Flutie came back to resurrect the Montreal franchise. Wow! And uh, and shortly thereafter, uh, Doug flew that uh, through the, uh, uh, the the touchdown pass for Boston College. And uh, I remember the next day seeing the coach and saying, ah, "Our our magic guy's done it. Uh, I can't wait till he gets here." And the coach had a had an ashen look on his face. He was. He was upset, and, and I said, what's wrong? And he said, after that touchdown pass, there's no chance he's coming here right away. <laughs> and so and so, Doug Flutie never came to the uh, Canadian Football League and for another five, six years after that, uh, maybe even more, um, because although he was tailor-made for the CFL, that... Uh, uh, that uh, that Hail Mary got him a, a, a first look at the NFL before he finally came to Canada and really established himself and then went back to Buffalo and San Diego, I think, after that. Well, Chris, a couple of quick hockey things before I let you go. Uh, Pierre Maguire has been hired in Ottawa as the vice president of player development. I know you're very familiar with Pierre. You've worked with him. Uh, uh, talk about your, your friendship with him and that opportunity to have him back in Ontario again. Well, I've, I've, I've worked extensively with Pierre, and uh, and, you know, I wondered where his uh, next broadcast move was going to be after the after NBC announced that it would not be pursuing the rights uh, going forward and uh, I think everybody was kind of watching ESPN TBS where where was Pierre going uh, and all of a sudden he shocked us all with the news that uh, he was the director of player development for the for the Ottawa Senators so it's exciting news for him uh, he goes way back to the the Stanley Cup teams with Pittsburgh in the early 90s and uh, so uh, he's got uh, he's got all that expertise to taking to a team that's uh, young and up and coming the senators aren't ready to make the playoffs yet I don't think but they are one of those teams that have uh, have 
taken a step back to take a few steps forward and uh and their rebuild i think is ahead of schedule and it's a it's a young team that's got a bright future so i think pierre is in the right spot and lastly chris uh, the nhl is coming to seattle uh, how do you think that market will fare how do you think uh, the seattle uh, franchise will do the, the certainly with vancouver out there and all the california teams we talked to dan rusnowski about this when we were talking about the west coast but uh, how do you think the nhl will do in seattle well, I think I think I think we know Seattle's a great sports town. Uh, they have uh, done everything right in the build-up, and and I think Vegas showed us that uh, there is uh, the NHL's made uh, their league expansion-friendly. It didn't used to be that way. Certainly, the first expansion, uh, they were not very generous with the uh, opportunity to stock the shelves of a team. But it's different now, and in a in a cap setup where you're starting from scratch and getting uh, and getting a, a pretty good selection of players from the rest of the league, I, I think Seattle can hit the ground running. I'm curious to see if they want to go real young and develop slowly, or whether they want to go with a a veteran group or a mix and and maybe be immediately uh, playoff viable like Vegas is. Uh, but I have no doubt it's going to be. Uh, uh, a success in Seattle uh, off the ice, and uh, and not only does do they have the West Coast rivalries with uh, the teams in California, but there's already talk of just a tremendous rivalry with Vancouver that's uh, that's going to build in a in a hurry. And I, I know fans in Vancouver are are looking forward to that, and and actually have a little trepidation because. Uh, uh, their team's kind of, uh, you know, wallowing a bit and, and has to uh, either take a step back or have to make some dramatic moves to get better. And uh, I think there's some concern that Seattle may may pass them in the short term unless they are uh, sharp in, in how they retool. Yeah, you know, I've never been to Vancouver. I've uh, been to Seattle, but never been to Vancouver. I've heard it's such a beautiful city out there, and, and they're so passionate about hockey, of course. They are. It is a. It's a rabid fan base. Uh, it's a very tough fan base now. Uh, but I will tell you, uh, if if nothing else in this uh, in this chat, uh, the best thing I can tell you is uh, is to make a trip to Vancouver because uh, uh, when the weather's nice, there is no more beautiful uh, city in the world. It is uh, it is absolutely breathtaking and uh, very much like Seattle. Uh, but uh, Vancouver's a special place, and uh, even from a long way off, uh, I'm a proud Canadian that uh, Vancouver's part of the country. Well, Chris, uh, we're up against the clock, and uh, we're going to wind it up. But I want to thank you so much for for spending some time with us. Thank you for being kind and gracious and being here. Thank you for your patience. We had a little bit of a technical glitch yesterday. But uh, I've always been a big admirer of yours. And, and, uh, you know, my brother lives up in Ottawa, so uh, I I look forward to maybe if you do a Senators game some night, I'd love to just maybe stop by and say hello. But, uh uh, again, thank you so much, Chris. It's been a wonderful experience, and I know our audience is going to love it, and, and I hope to, to chat with you down the road. That'll be awesome. I'll, I'll end with this one short little story. I got into the business sure. because I wanted to be a sportscaster, and I found a book online, or not online, actually, in a trade paper, and it was So You Want to Be a Sportscaster by Ken Coleman, who you may <laughs> be familiar with. Yes. And uh, I read that from cover to cover, and uh, here I am talking to you uh, about uh, 45, 50 years later. So uh, um, I, I thank you for the opportunity, and uh, I'm certainly grateful for the job I've got. 
All right. He is Chris Cuthbert, the voice of the National Hockey League on Sportsnet. He's been our special guest on the podcast. We invite you to uh, stay with us next week. We're going to be talking with uh, a certified coach, uh, Michelle Kuei, and uh, we invite you to uh, join in. So uh, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Locker Room. Mitochondrial disease is a rare multi-symptom disease characterized by breakdowns in the mitochondria, which are specialized compartments that are present in every cell of the body except red blood cells and are responsible for creating more than 90% of the energy needed by the body to sustain life and support growth. A disease most commonly associated with children, currently there is no cure, just management of symptoms. Hugs for Mito Inc. is mitochondrial disease, rare disease advocacy, awareness, fundraising for research trials, and hopefully a cure. To learn more, please visit hugsformito.org.